Good morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8, verses 12 through 28, and verses 53 through 58. Normally, I have other people read it, but it's nice and long, so they're probably saying, hey, all right, a little break here. Uh, Let us stand as I read God's Word. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in, all, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits then, is coming Uh, At his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it has When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. For this perishing body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortal When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. In 2011, in Japan, a terrible earthquake and tsunami claimed the lives of 16,000 people. A frightening wall of water swept many into the heart of the sea and out of the arms of their loved ones. In the following months and years after, afterward, Japan saw an increase in the number of people using telephone booths. But what was interesting is that the, although there was an increased number of people using telephone booths, like occupying the booths, what they realized was that the number of minutes actually being used, number of actual phone calls, were relatively the same. But why? The reason is, is that so many people who had lost so much, they had lost homes, they had lost loved ones in this tsunami, were sitting in the phone booths, picking up the phone to call their dead loved ones. I wish I could say that there was a reason behind it psychologically of why uh, they, they were doing this, and I could explain it from the Bible, but to say that this grief is really true and is really difficult. And here's the deal. I must confess to you that I have done the same thing. That same year, I lost my father. He died suddenly, and almost immediately after uh, I was told a day later, I found myself on the phone with his answering machine in order that I may listen to his voice. The grief of loss and that misery, that deep sorrow that you feel, you feel it in your bones when you lose someone, like I lost when I lost my dad. I just, I just didn't have a category for that. And only the resurrection can give me the, the framework or the understanding for why it happens and also how God will make it better. But it doesn't just extinguish the grief and put it away, but allows us to simultaneously grieve and have hope at the same time. All I wanted to do was hear his voice one more time. I wanted to tell him everything I was too afraid to. I wanted to remember and feel his scruffy face in my hands like it was when I was a kid when I would kiss him goodnight. I wanted to remember his hands which were so rough and calloused and scaly from his work as a plumber. I missed all those things and so I called him on his messaging machine. The things that we're feeling right now because of coronavirus or big rona is the same things that i was feeling when i wanted to call my dad we're feeling loss we're feeling what is known as grief and this is it we've all lost something these past few days you know the reaction to the seriousness of the illness reminds us that we're all actually going to die at some time so for some of us we've lost this aura of invincibility We've become uncomfortable. We've lost comfort. 
We're grieving the loss of freedoms. We're grieving the loss of community, the loss of handshakes, the loss of people looking you in the eyes and actually treating you like you're a human being, the loss of people saying hi to you, the loss of a clean house, of getting a break from your kids. We're all grieving the loss of life as we've known it. So what does that mean now? And how does the resurrection answer any of this and give us hope? For Paul, the only way to make sense of it all was to run through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What are we to do with grief is the question we're all asking. What are we, how are we to have hope? My question back is, do you have a framework or a story for why sad things happen? Do you have a resource for how this all gets put back together? Do you have a reason for why terrible things ever happen? Do you have an explanation for the answer for the world's problems? If this was all a story, what's the plot? What is the conflict? What is the climax? What is the resolution? And Paul says to everything, it is the life, death, and resurrection for Jesus of Jesus. If you don't have that, then nothing is going to make sense. You see, Jesus is the main puzzle piece that lets all the other pieces make sense. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't have a full picture. Without the death of Jesus, you don't have a substitute for your sins. If you don't have the resurrection, then the powers of sin and death got Jesus, and they're going to get you and me too. Some might say, Vince, oh, come on, man. You know, it's not about the destination of where we're going, so we really don't need to know about the resurrection. It's all about the journey, how to live life in this time. But if the destination is inconsequential, then what makes you think that the journey isn't also inconsequential? If only the destination matters, could we say that the journey has meaning? But yet we live every day during this journey like, like it actually has meaning. And what Paul is saying is your day-to-day life has meaning and has power only if Jesus actually rose bodily from the grave. We all yearn for resurrection. We all yearn to have meaning and hope that this isn't just going to end up, uh, we're all, we're, that, that we're not just going to all end up in the grave. The yearning for resurrection, life, and hope is a fundamental to every person. We try to push it down and try to ignore it like it was some kind of beach ball in a pool, but it always come up. It explains why some in the East will bring their relatives' favorite drinks, cigarettes, movies to their graves. Egyptians embalm their loved ones. Today, we use physical remains to fertilize trees in order that they may continue living as a tree. You see, we're really uncomfortable about death and we don't know what to do with it. And so we're all searching for resurrection life. And so in every way, every culture, every person has desired to deny death and continue living. It is how every person has an instinct about the permanence of the human person, but yet we have to face our own, or, or face our own mortality. The resurrection confronts all these tensions in our heart and gives us an actual answer for them. The truth of Jesus' physical resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is greater than any Gnostic platitudes or modern illusions. It gives us resurrection hope substantial, real, embodied resurrection hope. It gives us categories beyond kind of what we have uh, for, for today. Modernism can't give us everything we need. 
See, it gives us the, the story of the resurrection gives us an understanding for the breakdown of our bodies, the losses of our loved ones, the sadness of losing friends, the hardships of, of job loss, the stresses of raising children during a pandemic, and lets us know that the ultimate destiny is not in the grave from a disease, but rather standing on the earth again in a resurrected new body with Jesus Christ, that we will smell the good things again. We will taste them. We will feel them. We will run and not get tired. And that is the hope. And resurrection hope is superior to Gnostic platitudes and modern illusions. See, modern illusions and Gnostic platitudes can't deal sufficiently with the brokenness of this world. Also with the brokenness that's in your own heart, with your sin. Gnostic platitudes, let's start with that. Paul places an increased emphasis on the physicalness of Jesus' death and resurrection as the power to motivate virtue, love, and action throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Without the actualness of his crucifixion and without the actualness, the reality of his bodily resurrection, then there is no hope, Paul is arguing. That there is no reason to love, that there is no capital from the ba- in the bank account for which to withdraw from in the bank of love. Paul believes that Jesus' resurrection is a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And in the resurrection, that is how we get there. And so he, in the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 15, he gives this list of witnesses. It becomes like a fact checker. This actually happened. In verses 29 through 34, Paul insists that without the bodily resurrection, that what he is doing, even fighting off wild beasts, is simply stupid. And why would he write such things? Why would he write such things? Because without the bodily resurrection, why in the heck did these suddenly cow- that these cowardly apostles suddenly become brave to their own death, that Peter was even hung upside down on a cross and crucified like that? Suddenly they have gone from cowards to complete bravery, and it can't be based on a lie. It has to be based on the truth. And why would you ever start a story uh, about, about Jesus being resurrected based on the witnesses of women? It's inadmissible in court, but yet women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. See, Gnosticism does the opposite. It not, because, see, Paul is, is responding to this type of Gnosticism in the early church. What is Gnosticism? They're like, okay, come on, preacher boy. Let's go, nerdy boy. Let's, what do you got? Gnosticism teaches that the world or physical things are bad and that spiritual life or the life of the mind is superior and provides the means for transcendence or uh, kind of elevating out of the, the normal things of life. And these are the only, the only way that you get through this, Paul is saying, though, is resurrection life, real life. You see... Gnosticism teaches escape is provided through knowledge. An elevated mind is the path to heaven, the path to nirvana. And you, so you got to know things. You got to be able to think through things. But it comes through knowledge, not through crucifixion and bodily resurrection. I mean, this earth is bad. The resurrection is, is ridiculous to Gnostics. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul makes this interesting statement. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks to seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and the folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Jews, what they wanted to do is they wanted to have elevated experience. They wanted something to Instagram and get likes in order that they could elevate themselves out of the mundane, normal, trivial things of life. It was an elevated experience. Greeks, they wanted wisdom or logic. They wanted to tweet it. They wanted something they could tweet so that people would be able to retweet them. Either way, it was to elevate them out of the mundane, to deny pain and grief of the world. Gnosticism tells us that we need to avoid pain and grief. Treat it only as subpar humanly existence. And if we're able to detach from it as if this was some sort of Buddhism or something like that, then we wouldn't be affected by it so much because it was a lesser playing field. We needed to get out of it. See, Gnosticism has a problem with this. If you're feeling grief, there must be something wrong with you. The interesting thing about Christianity and what Paul is saying is that they can simultaneously exist. You can actually have a substantial uh, reason for grieving. You can actually really grieve. You can actually have real loss, but then also have the substantial weight and the ability to process it, get beyond that, and grow beyond that. And that only comes through the resurrection. And so what ends up happening is they try to cover up, many people will cover up with platitudes, which are nice little sayings or ways of saying things to, de to deny or relieve grief. You know, and this could take a Christian flavor as well. Often they'll gloss over pain and suffering, or they'll say the reason why you're experiencing pain and suffering is because you don't have enough faith. And that is damaging. And maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you're listening in and, and they're like, oh, here we go. Just another thing. Like, I feel pain and grief. What you need is more faith. That's not what I'm saying. You see, that is just another type of Gnosticism. It's like Christian Buddhism. What they'll say is, God has a plan for you. You just need to discover it. Just have faith. It takes statements of truth. You know, and it takes Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so all you need to do is claim it. They take the verse out of context. And they use it as a phrase to escape pain. Because pain and grief in their world cannot exist at the same time as God's peace. And I've heard this over and over and over again on the interwebs through pastors that I have followed. They have no ability to actually think that grief and loss can, can coexist at the same time with the resurrection. And how does, the, how does 1 Corinthians push back on that? It says, because it was through crucifixion that we get resurrection. It was through suffering that we get peace. It is not a binary. It exists at the same time. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Gnostic platitudes, all they do is deny re reality. They deny pain. And they deny suffering. But it can't make it go away. 
Only Christianity that has a physical death and a physical resurrection can give you a real hope in the midst of the grief that you're feeling experiencing daily. It means that sin and death is a real intruder. It has substance. It could do something to you. You are really sad. And the, the gospel could say, it, it could affirm that. But it can also say, because of the resurrection, it will one day be defeated totally because Jesus walked out of the grave. See, it can also move us, though, from being disengaged to active in the world. If it was all about Gnosticism, if it was all about escaping, then we could just get out with our minds and then we could get in and, you know, we don't, we could just kind of give platitudes, just give someone so they could feel better. Or like, here's a true knowledge. If you were just, uh, had the true knowledge, then you could deny this existence. No. Because of a bodily resurrection, do you know what that means? That means we could actually engage our neighbors and care for them in their, in their physical difficulty on the day-to-day life. You see, when the world is falling apart, we don't need wishful thinking. We need a body walking out of the tomb. When a friend loses a loved one, they don't need platitudes, but they need your presence. They need your prayers. They need you to be there to grieve with them. As 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, we are not like those who grieve without hope. For we have hope because grief will not always last, but we can actually say that grief actually hurts. So we have no platitudes, but we have a resurrected Lord, and we know that is our destiny, and that gives us hope. But what about these modernistic illusions? modernistic illusions. We believe that technology is going to give us this sense of stability. We believe that technology and everything that we've gotten has uh, given me enough kind of likes or reputation on Facebook or, or through Instagram or TikTok, uh, which kind of still freaks me out. I don't know why people think they can dance in front of a screen and then become popular or escape the world through their dance moves. I'm sorry. Most of y'all are in- uncoordinated. Just putting that one out there. Anyway, so... See, we try to use technology to give us a sense of comfort, a a bearing in the world. We try to use technology to give us community, but it's only illusion of community. No one is really looking you in the eyes. Nobody is actually shaking your hand, giving you a hug through it. Verses 20 through 28 let us know that Christ is the first fruits of a new creation. If the story of the world is that we were created, then we are fallen in sin. What is needed is that the world needs to be redeemed in order to enter a new creation. And this 1 Corinthians follows this pattern, but it happens in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus, it says, that all shall be made alive and enter the kingdom of God, but it only comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through our own power or efforts. And we should be reminded of it this past month because technology has not been able to save us. Many believe that society and humanity will evolve to uh, not needing God at some point. That through modern technology, we'll be able to escape. Modern technology, it's good at distracting us from pain and grief. It's good at distracting us from our sin. It's good at soothing us from the brokenness of the world but it can't possibly heal us. 
You see, it can't give us a reason for why it happens, and it can't give us a solution to how to simultaneously live with grief and loss. It can't give us substantial hope. Modern technology can give us a fleeting temporal hope, but it can't solve man's mortality, man's sin. Modern technology can distract us for days upon days with uh, Netflix binge-watching The Tiger King. I know you guys have watched it. I mean, how else can you resist that mullet? It is glorious. Uh, it also gives us a few moments of levity as we scroll through the lives of our friends and see what they're up to during the day. It can connect us through Zoom, but it can't keep people from using it to neglect their kids can't keep people uh, from using it to leverage others, can't keep people from gate-crashing Zoom calls. It can't keep people from doing that. Why? Because of the deep problem that technology can't solve is the existential crisis of sin in the heart. Or as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, that the problem of good and evil does not rest out there as a dividing line between good and bad, but rather cuts through the center of every person's heart. Technology can prolong life, but it can't make it permanent. It can't make it beautiful, can't make life full, can't make life good. Only a new creation through death. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ can give us that. Only resurrection helps us enter into that new life. See, we have problems we can't escape. How in the world do you explain the use of technology for mass genocide, for wiping out thousands, thousands of people being snuffed out through bombs, taking advantage of others, manipulating them through technology, blackmailing through technology. Technology can't give us that. Ultimately, it cannot give us an answer to death. Only Jesus Christ's resurrection can we see death serve life. And that's only in Jesus. It does not end it. Death is not the end, according to Jesus, according to Paul in these verses. And so, let us look at what these verses talk about, and that's resurrection hope. Verses 35 through 58 tell us that because God's love is stronger than your sin and death, God's love in Jesus is what defeats death and remakes and recreates the world, then we will be like him. And nothing can stop us from look, being like him. Someday we will all fall into the ground like a seed, and we will all be grown, we will grow out imperishable. We will die in the ground, but we will come out imperishable like Jesus who went and died in the tomb and came out into resurrection, new life. And it reminds me of this thing because we see resurrection hope is the hope that you will be completely remade, renewed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that his resurrection love and resurrection power is what transforms us from being ugly and beastly into beautiful. It is like the love of Belle and Beauty and the Beast that transforms the beastly prince and recreates him and brings him into a new creation, into a new life. 
and it only comes through love. Resurrection teaches us that love will remake us. It says, for this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We will be made more human than we were before. We will be truly like the resurrected Jesus. See, Christianity gives us a, uh, a category for grief. If you remember Jesus in John 11, it says Jesus wept at, his, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, so much so that he snorted with indignation, it says. And so what does this mean about grief and loss? It means grief and loss is real. Why? Because grief and loss actually hit Jesus like a truck on the cross ran him through, and he died. But it also means, because he was resurrected, that grief and loss does not get the last word. That is not what we will experience all our days. It means that someday we will be like him, resurrected into joy and goodness. Knowing what the end is will give us hope. I uh, love riding my bike, especially to the top of mountains, including Pikes Peak, not today. Uh, and what ends up giving me hope is this. There's two things. I look up and I know what the end is because I could see the antenna from these little antenna towers on top of the building up there. And then I also get one thing. It is the whiff of the smell of donuts. The donuts at the top of Pikes Peak are glorious. And when we look at the person of Jesus Christ and we see and understand that he was resurrected in front of people who actually saw them with real eyeballs, saw him with real eyeballs, we realize that that is what we're going to be like in the end, that the end is not in the grave because of COVID-19, that the end is a resurrected life in body in the person of Jesus Christ, just like him. It is like we get a whiff of the donuts when we see Jesus Christ in the resurrected life. That is what we are going to be like. We're going to raise immortal in Christ. And that is good news. And so it allows us to keep going at the end. When it is tiring and the wind is blowing in your face. When your friends turn against you. When your loved ones die. What's going to keep you going in this life? only knowing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You see, sin and death is an intruder, but the resurrection is the antibody to the virus that is sin and death. It gives us strength to fight it off because Jesus Christ put death in a grave when he walked out of the tomb. Coronavirus will not be the end of the world no matter how many times I play that stinking REM song it's the end of the world as we know it and my kids dance around like a bunch of banshees with their shirts off and go crazy coronavirus isn't going to end the world what is going to end the world the new world being remade in the person of Jesus Christ resurrection life
Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, loss and grief doesn't get the last word. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, sin and death doesn't finish us all up. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, my sin won't condemn me because Jesus Christ frees me. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, grief won't last forever. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, the grave will give up our loved ones. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, we will once again shake hands and hug with our friends. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, he will, we will touch the faces of our loved ones and feel the scruff in our hands because Jesus walked out of the tomb. He will wipe away all our tears because Jesus wipe, walked out of the tomb. We will run with our friends. We will hear their laughs. We will hug our kids again. We will hear the voices of our parents. We will be able to eat and drink with friends. We will feast again in happiness together forever. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb, life will be full and death will be done and it will be laid in the tomb forever because Jesus walked out of a tomb. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus is alive and we live in him. Let us pray. Almighty God, Help us at this time to grieve what we have lost, but grieve with hope, the hope of the resurrection, because Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb and stands in imperishable life now. We too will stand with imperishable life with him. That we too will run and will not get weary. That we too will not fall because you stand Lord, help us to remember the goodness of Jesus Christ. Let us shout for joy. Let us look forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb when we are united again, in which we will rejoice because we have been resurrected and the whole world has been made new, that every tear has been wiped from our eyes. Lord, let it be. And as the author Tolkien once said, Lord, let us wake up from this nightmare and let us believe that all the sad things are going to come untrue because when Jesus walked out of the tomb, they started. In Jesus' name, amen.